Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. During the 2021 season, the Handel and Haydn Society has adjusted to COVID restrictions and kept active by producing and offering several live-streamed concert programs. One such program, featuring the music of Mozart, C.P.E. Bach, Boyce, and Avison, was recorded at Cary Hall in Lexington, Massachusetts, only half a mile from the Battle Green, the very spot where the Revolutionary War began on April 19, 1775. H&H is an arts organization that specializes within an already specialized field, in our case, in the performance of music from the 17th and 18th century, within frequent forays before and after. Such organizations routinely assess ways in which they can remain or increase their relevance to a society that, by and large, enjoys other forms of music. With the increased national demand for social justice and equity that has been experienced in the United States over the year or so leading up to this episode, H&H as an organization, as well as its individual officers and musicians, have engaged in an equally increased assessment of ways to understand our role in society and ways in which we might impact it. The performance and proximity of such a historic site led to questions about life in Lexington at the time the music we performed was written, the period between about 1756 and 1779, the juxtaposition of European musicians with colonial residents of pre-revolutionary Boston revealed some expectedly vivid dichotomies. But it also served to highlight some facets of life that were far less well known to us and relevant to many of the questions being asked by so many of us. Aiding in navigating some of these questions was Dr. Robert Bellinger, Associate Professor of History at Suffolk University in Boston. Dr. Bellinger teaches African American and American history, African diaspora studies, and the history and culture of Senegal. His research interests include late 19th century African American history, West African history and culture, and West African drum traditions. He is director of the Black Studies Program, as well as of the Clark Collection of African American Literature, and is a member of numerous historical as well as performance organizations, such as the Soli Soma Djembe Orchestra. His most recent book is Monuments, Memorials, and Historic Sites, New England's Visible Black History and Photographs, published in 2018. I had hoped to continue and expand on our brief conversation following the live stream, And Dr. Bellinger graciously agreed to join me. Dr. Bellinger, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. In our conversation leading up to this episode, you mentioned that you were not initially drawn to colonial American history and perhaps even avoided it. I'm curious what might have caused such resistance and what led you to set it aside and approach that history. Well, my initial reticence... I think is similar to a lot of people. It seemed very distant 
for one. And it also didn't appeal to me because I think often when we look at history, we look for reflections of ourselves. And I was not really seeing a great deal of reflections of myself in the colonial era. At the time when I went through high school, slavery was really barely covered, and it wasn't covered in a way that was appealing in any form. Um, so colonial just didn't seem interesting to me. But as I taught high school history, I had to teach the colonial era. And I found very exciting ways to get students to engage in um, discussions and debates, particularly around the era of the um, revolution and the writing of the Constitution. And that's where I, you know, gained a little bit of insight, but still was not pulled into really exploring it. I think that focusing on and, and learning more about African-American history was a portion of what began to pull me there. Looking at the broader area of the African diaspora did, but then it was um, through genealogical research, particularly dealing with my own family, that began pulling me back into the first in the early 19th century and then into the colonial era. And so now I'm searching around in the uh, 18th century more than I ever have before. May I ask, I'm curious, you mentioned that you were able to inspire some conversation and debate amongst your high school students. Uh, I'm curious how you did that. How did you go about creating space for that conversation? Well, I had a marvelous mentor who was teaching at Brookline High School, a man named Tom Ladenberg, who had created an amazing curriculum that made use of debates and um, role playing. And one of the highlights of my class, which I took from him, was a reenactment of the Constitutional Convention where each student was given a role of one of the delegates whom they had to learn and who they had to then present in class and actually deal with five different topics for a week. And so that engagement really made them look beyond the biographies they were given to try to learn more about the time period and about some of the issues and and to bring these characters to life. And it, it was an exciting week. Mm, sounds exciting. Was this at Brooklyn High School? No, this was at um, Concord Academy. Okay, interesting. Some of our uh, members teach music at Concord Academy, and I used to teach orchestra at Brooklyn High School. Ah, so interesting we have, connections. Have, we have a bit of a connection. We also, I should mention, uh, have a connection in the sense that you are a musician as well as a scholar. You, you are a percussionist, is that correct? Yes, I'm a percussionist, hand drums and uh, percussion, but also sometimes a saxophonist. Oh, okay. Well, that's news to me. I, I'm glad to know that. Why only sometimes? <laughs> when can we hear you play? Well, these days I play... In my house okay. um, for an audience of one. And, and I say sometimes because it's an instrument I learned when I was young and then left it, um, came back to it 
during my 20s, then left it again and have been off and on. And now I'm reestablishing my relationship with it. I see. And it's interesting to see how much slower you move across the keys and <laughs> and how much you forget. And is there a genre of music you particularly enjoy playing? Well, the last time I played very diligently, I was playing uh, mostly jazz and a little bit of pop. And so that's really what I'm looking at these days, but also a little bit of what, what's categorized as world music. I see. Yeah. So there's a lot of correlation between uh, jazz and what we do at Handel and Haydn, and especially what the composers that we often play did in terms of improvisation, the importance of making music in the moment, ephemeral. It's, it's gone once it's made. That's certainly the world they lived in, and much of it was, was improvised. And actually, my next question had to do with some of these composers. Um, our initial interaction materialized around the performance H&H gave at Carey Hall of, of music that, to me at least, can easily be used to create a visual of the lives of its composers and the first audiences. These composers were men, and they were uh, running around in frock coats and high socks, white wigs. They rode in carriages. They used quills to compose. They were employed by the court or the nobility or by the church, by the aristocracy. These are some of the images that come to my mind, at least, perhaps two-dimensional, but you know, backed up by some history. Uh, and they are, of course, the very things that on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, American colonists were rejecting and moving away from, specifically the nobility, uh, the court. Would you create a contrasting visual to what I perhaps inadequately created for Europe, uh, but of, of Lexington, of life in Lexington around the start of the Revolutionary War? Well, yes, I, I think you, you presented a very nice imagery of that. But in Lexington, Lexington was pretty much a farming community for the most part. And it did have some citizens who were more well-to-do, but they were generally in the minority. It was a fairly homogenous community. The citizens were Congregationalists. And so as a farming community, most people were employed in some aspect of agriculture, even though there were some skilled trades that would later develop. So as farmers, they were definitely not wearing the frock coats and <laughs> as in England, but were often engaged in working the soil. Reverend uh, Jonas Clark, who was um, the third pastor of the church, he was a farmer. And, and when you read his diaries, he talks about, you know, crops that he's planting. You know, he talks about bringing in the wheat. He talks about you know, cows that are coming, being brought to his home, because I believe he was also had had a bull, which he rented for stud. So he, he was engaged in everything from spreading manure to planting uh, onions. Mm. And so it seems like folks were more down to earth, <laughs> to use the farming metaphor. Right. And, and a lot of bartering and trade, there was not a, a large amount of money 
all the time, even though, you know, the minister was paid a salary. Usually that was used to pay for workers he hired or to pay for services or other things. Mm. So an agrarian community. Yes. Indeed. I was wondering about the musical life of these colonists. You know, I, I recently came across information that suggests that the first advertised concert in the North American colonies took place in Boston, or at least the first advertisement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was in 1729. Uh, there's no information as to what was played. It was described as sundry works. Not sure what those were. Um, I was wondering what role music played for most residents of Lexington, for instance, and how available it was and what kind of music they might have heard. Well, that is an interesting question because often, and I, I think you alluded to this, often we hear that the Puritans were not interested in music and did not really have much music. And primarily singing in worship services was one of the big forms of music that was engaged in. However, it was not the only form of music that was engaged in. There was music that, as I've been looking at it, music comes in in a lot of different ways, particularly singing music. There were reports of people riding in sleighs and singing songs as they're headed home, you know. Taverns often had music. People would gather in taverns, not only to uh, share news of the day, but often to sing and sometimes to dance. You know, some taverns would have a musician, usually a fiddler, come in and play for dancing. And there were also, by the mid-18th century, you began to get more traveling musicians and dance teachers coming through. And people tended to enjoy dancing um, when they did. And it was seen, it wasn't always frowned upon. Mm. So the idea of Puritans completely rejecting music seems to be incorrect, that perhaps, you know, the same divisions that exist today between folks of a more conservative ilk and uh, others, uh, not necessarily politically, but just in personality, might have objected to music, but others might not have. Uh, is that basically an accurate description? Yes, I would say that there, there were those who objected to it, and there were those who welcomed it. And that really seems to play out over the 18th century. One of the things about Boston, it did not have a regular theater op orchestra, mm -hmm. right? Which, and, and in some places, the theater orchestras would be where you would get the musicians for concerts and other things. And Boston did not have that, but they had um, good regimental bands. And from those bands, they had music in many, many different ways. By this time, many of the musicians in the military bands often were professionals. And they weren't necessarily soldiers, they were musicians. They played and, and a band could be as many as eight players with pairs of oboes, clarinets, French horns, and bassoons hmm. would generally make up the band. And then 
you would also have the field music, which were the drums and fifes, which was a separate unit. And so those bands would play for celebrations. It might be um, at the uh, installation of a minister. It might be at other major events. Some bands even had fiddlers in mm. them. So it seems like bands were used militarily, but also for some of the common uh, purposes that we use bands today. Obviously, you can there, there are concert bands. You can hear a performance at a, at a hall, but also at civic events, sporting events, things like that. It seems like that's a role that's been instituted for a long time. Yes, and one of, one of the early uses of music in towns was with drummers or trumpeters, because many towns didn't have a bell to uh, let people know of something happening, mm -hmm. right? And so the drummer and the, or the trumpeter would be basically the town crier to summon people to events that were happening. In the brief and probably topical research I've been able to do from my home without uh, access to primary sources, I've read mentioned some music for band and also music in church and specifically around the organ. And uh, there seem to have been the same divisions of people who accept and reject it. But there's a particular story that you alluded to in our previous conversation about a minister named Brattle. Oh, yes, um, Thomas Brattle. He was the treasurer of Harvard College. He was also a very prominent leading citizen of Boston. And he was also a Puritan who was much more liberal in outlook than some. And so he was one of the founders of Brattle Square Church, which took a more liberal view than the other Congregationalist churches. Now, Thomas Brattle also had a chamber organ, and he made a trip to England around 1689. And he had been born in the colony, so he had probably never seen an organ before, and evidently was captivated by one, and at some point decided to have one made and imported it. It came sometime in the early 18th century. There's, you know, uh, a bit of uncertainty about how he got it or when, and also about who built it. And even when it was restored, they couldn't figure out who the original builder was. But it was the first organ in Boston. Hmm. And he had it in his home and probably used it for secular music and maybe some private worship services or something, but, you know, people had seen it and remarked upon it. When he died in 1713, he bequeathed his organ to the Brattle Square Church with the condition that within a year, they find a skillful organist to play or otherwise give it to King's Chapel, which was an Anglican church. Hmm. So, you know, there's religious uh, differences there between the Congregationalists and the Anglicans. Well, Brattle Church did not think that it was proper to use an organ in the public worship of God. Hmm. And so they voted to not accept it. <laughs> and so King's Chapel got it and was the beneficiary of that bequest. 
Yes, that summer, King's Chapel voted that the organ be accepted, and they took the organ in. Now, what's interesting is that the whole process didn't just stop there because it seemed to open up a doorway to a debate about the pros and cons of instrumental music in worship. Mm. And through the 18th century, it was hotly debated, it seems. Reports said that uh, Harvard students wrote papers about it, Mm. that it was discussed at commencements. You know, some congregations had issues when a, a minister took a different view than some of the congregants, they'd walk out, you know, so it was hotly debated. Brattle Square Church did get an organ in the late 18th century. Hmm. And it was reported that one of its members offered to give a sum equal to the cost of the organ to the poor for the privilege of depositing the organ in Boston Harbor. People have said that about my playing after hearing me play. I'll pay to not hear him again. <laughs> Some things haven't changed. No. So, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, people had such strong opinions about it Indeed. and about whether or not instruments should be used in the worship services. And, in fact, the earliest instrument that I found being used in worship services was the the bass viol Mm. and it was preferred because it was low enough to not overpower the singers but it was able to help them keep in tune and to sing more melodically Mm. which by during the 18th century had become a problem because there were not many trained singers And I always imagine a group of people who have my singing abilities trying to sing (laughs) and not creating much of a pleasant sound and not one that would put you in the mind of worshiping. (laughs) That is so interesting that you bring up the bass viol, not only because it's an instrument that had to be resurrected essentially in the 20th century and one which we use more or less regularly in our ensemble, but for the purpose that you state that it, it was used, I had a conversation a few episodes ago with our associate conductor for the chorus, uh, Scott Allen Jarrett, and we talked about a, a Bach motet, which we had performed our chorus and, and our orchestra. And I asked him, you know, this music can be performed without the orchestra. All the orchestra does is play the exact same notes as the chorus. It doubles the chorus. And we talked about the pros and cons. And we have a magnificent chorus full of the absolute best professionals that can be found. Uh, But even they find use to having the orchestra playing the notes for the exact same reasons you just mentioned. So it's a very interesting tie-in to to this period in Boston when, you know, actually in 1729, Bach's choral music, much of it was already written. He only had 21 years left to live. But it's unlikely it was being sung and played here. But still, there's, there's that tie-in, which I, I really appreciate. Yeah, and it's interesting that it was sometimes referred to as God's fiddle, mm. in contrast to the violin, which was called the devil's instrument, <laughs> <laughs> because it was so much connected to secular activities such as dancing. That's right. That's right. That's, I mean, the origins of the violin in the 1550s were 
street music, dance music, but also at the same time doubling or uh, uh, church choirs. And so it had a double and and opposite role, but we kind of focus on the devilish virtuosity that can be achieved on an instrument. Yes, and that that may be because of its um, portability. Mm. It, it was an instrument that could be used by traveling musicians and you know visiting taverns and playing and and earning some money for that um, mm. and had the ability to create you know melodies that could get your feet moving i guess exactly yeah it's very good for that use <laughs> i wanted to ask you once again about about lexington but really about the whole area i was wondering if you would comment on the racial makeup of Lexington or Boston, whichever you prefer. You could focus on Lexington if you wish. Okay, well, Lexington itself is not a, a great deal different or distinct from Boston in that the population in the 18th century is not very, very large. In Boston, for instance, between 1708 and 1720, the black population increased from about 400 to about 2,000, which made it about one-sixth of the population then. Whereas Lexington, in 1735, recorded 20 um, enslaved people. In 1744, it said 18. In 1754, it said 20. But by... 1775, there were only five listed. Now, that meant in the years between 1750 and, say, 1770, it was about 2.2% of the population. These numbers may be low, it's thought, but overall, there were over 100 enslaved people and 60 slave owners in Lexington during the 18th century. Wow. And uh, I have to admit that, like, like I think many people, uh, I hope, I'm not unique in this way, this was news to me, right? I, I also am shedding incomplete histories that I may have learned uh, early in school and kind of simplified ideas that slavery didn't exist in the North. And certainly if it did, not having any idea to what extent it did. And so your research shows that sadly slavery was alive and well in our beloved city here uh, in the 18th century. Well, what's really interesting is the public relations that has occurred, particularly I'll, I'll say in Eastern Massachusetts, during the period of the American War of Independence, there were a lot of things that happened in Massachusetts, and one of those was a new state constitution in 1780. And in that constitution, it said that all men are born free and equal. And a few years after that, there was a court case by one man, Quack Walker, and there was also a case by Elizabeth Freeman. Both of those cases were suits for freedom on different grounds, but it ended with the judge by the mid-1780s saying, proclaiming that since the 1780 Constitution, 
said that all men were born free and equal, it, it meant that slavery was not legal in Massachusetts. And that is, is seen as the point where slavery ends, but it's not so direct as that. That's a point when slavery was recognized as not being accepted legally. However, it did not mean an immediate end, but it meant the beginning of the end so to speak. What ends up happening after the revolution because of the role of places like Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, those things begin to be celebrated and then come to characterize the places. And then as Boston becomes a center of abolitionist activity, that comes to characterize it. And its slave beginnings kind of get lost in the mists of time. Hmm. And so places get recognition as being bastions of liberty, and the South then becomes the place of slavery. And people forget that, for instance, Massachusetts was the first of the 13 colonies to legally recognize slavery in its body of liberties in 1641. So yes, looking at and recovering that history is, I think, an important part of, of presenting the whole story, but also of helping us to understand that the institution had, uh, of slavery had deep roots that spread across the nation. I believe Lexington has commissioned you, the town has commissioned you to explore and research further than has been done previously racial makeup and the status of its people of African origin at this time period. Is that correct? That That's research you'll be taking on this coming year? Yes, that is research I'll be doing this year, working with the um, Lexington Historical Society, which is really interested in expanding its interpretation at historic sites and of the town, but also working with uh, members of the Fallen Church who have been working on uh, researching the history for some time. Margaret Michelot has written pamphlets about slavery in Lexington and has done really amazing research. And then you have also the Association of Black Citizens of Lexington who have been researching and exploring the possibilities of even working with the Historical Society to create a Black Heritage Trail in Lexington. Hmm. So there are several different forces that seem to have all been working that has come together. And so it's an exciting project and an exciting time. I was wondering, in our previous conversation, you touched on the role of Black soldiers in martial bands in particular, musicians, Black musicians in these bands. Oh. Would you speak to what became of these musicians after the war? Well, what was interesting is that there were a number of Blacks who were musicians in the military or connected to military. They were often serving as trumpeters or drummers or fifers. And what is interesting is that during the revolution, there were some choices that could be made for those who wanted to play music in military bands. One choice was to be with the, the Patriots, the Americans, um, because they did use and needed uh, musicians. The other choice was to join the British, who also used bands. But then 
an additional choice that came up was to join the Hessian soldiers who also had bands. And the Hessian soldiers were a big draw because they had adopted earlier than most of the rest of Europe what is called a Janissary style band. And these come from the Ottoman Empire. They used instruments such as bass drums or cymbals, triangles, another staff uh, with crescents and, and, and bells called the Jingling Johnny. Mm-hmm. And um, they also used high-pitched reeds and flutes. They were said to, to really play in a style that was really very exciting. They used cross-handed drumming, flashy stick work, such as throwing the sticks in the air and catching them and on beat. And they used cadence dance movements, a lot more rhythmic uh, complexity. All of that was very attractive. Now, I was looking at some statistics that said about at least 82 people from the colonies joined the Hessian forces during the revolution. Of those 82, 52 were drummers. And of those 52, 35 were of African descent. Many of them came from South Carolina in the area of Charleston. So there was this draw for them to to join and play this more exciting style. But also what was underlying decisions to either work with the Patriots or the British or the Hessians was with one eye towards emancipation. Hmm. And so that was also a part of that. And some of those who joined the Hessian returned to Germany with them. Was there promise of a better life in Germany than there was here for them? That is uh, something that can be conjectured. I know there were some early people of African descent in Germany who had a good life, like uh, William Anton Omo, who uh, was originally from Ghana and ended up attending the top universities and teaching at the top universities in Germany and after his retirement, returning to Ghana. But for the rank and file, I have not looked into what their lives were like afterwards. I do know that of those who joined the British, some did return to England with the British troops. Many of them did not have a great life in terms of that. They, they struggled um, to make a living. But one of the things that is interesting that I hope to look at more is exactly what did happen with those who left and went with the British. Some went as far as Australia. Some went into the Caribbean. And the most well-known group to leave were those who went to Nova Scotia. And then from that group, many left and went to Sierra Leone. So there's this very global dispersal of folks who were of African descent who participated in the revolution. One of the things we we have to think about is the, that as you know, with a good piece of orchestral music, there are layers to it. And I would say the same is true with history. There are layers. 
And while we often talk about that era of the revolution from the perspective of the American colonists fighting for freedom, we often don't consider that alongside of them were those of African descent who were fighting for emancipation, which was a different kind of concept than the freedom the colonists were fighting for. And emancipation being the goal was one of the reasons that four times as many people of African descent as fought with the American colonists joined the British forces. And they did so because there was this perception that the British were more interested in emancipation than the Americans were. And this perception came from a case in England, the Somerset case in 1770, in which Lord Mansfield ruled that this one enslaved person, um, Somerset, whose owner, he had tried to escape and his owner captured him and was going to send him to Jamaica and abolitionists intervened and the case went to the courts and it was ruled that uh, basically the air of England is too free for a slave to breathe. And while this only focused on that case, it was taken to mean that slavery was no longer valid in England. And this news also hit the colonies and there were stories of African-Americans who said, let's make a plan to escape and go to England because we'll be free. So that was in the air during the early days of the war with Britain. And then on top of that, the um, royal governor in Virginia, Lord Dunmore, issued a proclamation at the start of the conflict saying any enslaved person who joined the British forces would get freedom and land if the British were victorious. And that led to a large number of folks heading to the British forces because the Somerset case, the proclamation, and at the same time, the American troops said that blacks would not be accepted to serve in the military. So, you know, it really created this dichotomy of where are we going to get the best opportunity? You're involved in research into the presence of slavery in Massachusetts at the founding of the country. You've spoken about the role of black residents in the Boston area uh, and in the war and the early history of the country as well as the departure of some to Europe. How do you tie this history to the present moment? And are there lessons or guidance you most wish that we could take away from this research and apply to our current efforts towards equity and inclusion? Well, I think that it's really a work on one level of reclamation by seeking out who are the people who existed by finding their names and, and bringing those names to light is part of reclaiming um, their humanity and not just lumping them together as, oh, slaves, 
with no identity, but as human beings and part of the human family, looking at family connections they may have had, looking at the kinds of activities they engaged in, such as those who did play music. And I think that by doing that, we get one, a fuller picture of our past, you know, of the history of the United States, mm -hmm. and have a stronger foundation by which to begin to understand the present. And so the, the two are, are very much linked together, looking at the past and trying to use that past to inform present and to shape how we look at the future. Yeah, I think that the more we know about the people and their relationships, the better off we are. I hope that your research uncovers more of those truths that we can consider as we move forward. And I want to thank you for a very illuminating conversation, for your time and expertise, and for joining me today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've, you know, got some new things to think about as well. We will hope to see you and perhaps even hear you again soon. Dr. Robert Bellinger is Associate Professor of History at Suffolk University. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhyden.org backslash podcast for this and other episodes, as well as supplementary materials. These include links to Dr. Bellinger's work and articles relating to today's topic. I hope you'll join me for the next episode.